Firstly, I'll introduce myself. My name is Professor Michael Cox. I'm the founding director of LSC Ideas, partner in crime to Arnie Westad, director of Ideas. Welcome to the LSC on what is bound to be a very special evening to launch a very special and important book written by a very special academic and dear friend of mine, Professor Odani Westad, Director of Ideas, uh, LSE's uh, Foreign Policy Think Tank, a fellow of the British Academy, and like me, long-time suffering supporter of the Arsenal football team. <laughs> I had to say that, Arnie, you know, just, just because I know the director is a supporter of Manchester United. Yes, uh, Arnie was born in 1960 in Alosund on the west coast of Norway, famed for its fishing, for being one of the great world centers of Art Nouveau architecture, and for the part it played in the resistance to Nazi occupation during World War II. Arnie was educated first at the University of Oslo, up at Blinden, before moving across the Atlantic to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where he studied under the, uh, the great American historian, uh, Michael Hunt. He then returned to Oslo in 1991 to become uh, director of research at the Nobel Institute, uh, working alongside another great historian of the Cold War and another Norwegian, Guy Lundestad, who will be coming here soon. But fortunately for us here at the, at the school, uh, Arnie then made the extraordinarily wise decision to take up a position back here at the LSE and arrived here in 1998. And the rest, as they say, is history <laughs> in every sense of the word. A series of sparkling books followed, including Decisive Encounters, the Chinese Civil War, 1945 to 1950, his prize-winning Global Cold War, which won the Bancroft Prize in 2006, his four-volume Cambridge History of the Cold War, his work on revising John Roberts' wonderful Penguin History of the World, and now this terrific volume which we'll be talking about this evening, or he will be, Restless Empire, China and the World Since 1750. Arnie, it's been great working alongside you in ideas. Long, long may we continue to be partners in crime. I can hardly say welcome to the LSE. You're already here. Uh, much better, I think, to say congratulations uh, on a brilliant career as one of the very few true international historians of the modern world. I've learned an enormous amount from you, and we are all looking forward to hearing what you have to say tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, members of the Westad family, two of whom I think are in the audience, uh, director, friends and colleagues from Ideas, I give you Professor Arnie Westad. Give him a good cheer. Thank you very much, Mick. Um, it's always a pleasure to introduce something that you've been working on for quite a while at your home institution. And it's a particular pleasure for me to be introduced by Mick Cox, who has been um, my closest collaborator, uh, my closest friend, ever since I came to this institution. Uh, we worked together to set up LSE Ideas, which I think is probably, to me, the most important thing that I will ever do in terms of my intellectual endeavors. 
here or anywhere. Um, it's been a feast throughout, and it's an ongoing relationship, of course, as Mick said. Uh, Mick may have retired from the International Relations Department, but he has in no way retired from ideas. Anyone who comes up to the second floor of Columbia House will hear that immediately, because <laughs> you, can't, you can't avoid hearing Mick when he is around. So thank you for, for setting this up, Mick. Also thanks to what we've now learned to call post-Olympics team ideas, uh, which is a wonderful group of people uh, whom it's a great privilege to work with. It's one of those places where there is something going on every day. Uh, it's a fascinating place to be. Uh, it's the kind of place that I always wanted to work in and, and work for. A particular thanks to Tiha and Emilia, who are the ones who hold this center together and to a very high extent make it possible for people like Mick and myself to do uh, what we want to do. I also want to start this lecture by thanking the LSE because it has been an enormous privilege, it is an enormous privilege for me to work in this institution. Um, it symbolizes to me everything that I think is important about scholarship, not just in terms of the fantastic research that we do here, but first and foremost in terms of the public engagement that the LSE represents. It's something I always wanted to be part of. I love my scholarship, I love writing and doing research, but it's even more important to try to communicate that, to try to bring that into a setting in which the greatest number of people uh, engage with what you do. And if you're very lucky once in a while, and if you have the support of a great institution like the LSE, dedicated to that purpose, you will be able to communicate with a large number of people, and I have been very lucky in that respect. Through ideas, through my colleagues in the International History Department, and through the support that this institution now for more than 15 years have given to me and my research. I am very, very glad to be able to work in an institution like the London School of Economics. Now, public engagement. That also is one of the themes of this book. It's very much a book that I wanted to write for a general audience who have an interest in seeing where China is coming from in terms of its international affairs, what kind of issues China would be preoccupied with both now and in the future, in the light of the development of China's international relations over the past 250 years or so. And I wanted to do that from a China-centered perspective. I wanted to slightly change the framework from the literature that we have, or at least most of the literature that we have in English, that takes as its point of departure seeing China from the outside. Now, that's important. But it's also important to see China from the inside in terms of uh, its development, in terms of its engagement with the outer world. Not just to see China in light of what has happened elsewhere. And there are now the sources available for doing that. I mean, you, you can do that. Uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago, it was much more difficult to do. China has become a much more open society, also in terms of access to materials of various kinds. It's still much more difficult and I certainly noticed that when I was writing this book, to get access to the kind of materials an historian needs for his work in China than in many other places. But it's possible now to a much higher extent than what has been the case in the past, and that is very, very important. Now, I've been lucky enough to be working with China and with Chinese people for 
almost a whole period in which this opening of China to the outside world has taken place. And that's been another of the great privileges of my life. I have been very lucky in, in, in many respects. Uh, I first came to China in 1979 as a visiting student, and I've been coming back almost every year since then. So I've been able to follow at close hand this remarkable transformation that China has been going through. Um, probably the most remarkable period of change in China's history for a very long time. My guess would be that you have to go back to the 8th century or something like that to see similar changes taking place in how Chinese think, how they see their own country, how they see the outside world. Then that period that has taken place since the late 1970s and up to today. It is really remarkable um, in terms of what has happened. When I first came to Beijing, um, one of the decisions that the Maoist leadership had taken during the Cultural Revolution was to abolish money. I mean, money really didn't exist. If you wanted to go for a meal at a Beijing restaurant, at a downtown restaurant, for those of you who know Beijing, and I know that there are several here, you went to the central part of, of the city, but you couldn't go into a restaurant, uh, book a table, and take a friend or a, or a, or a girlfriend or, or, or someone who were with you in there. You have and pay for it. You have to have a permit from your work unit in order to be allowed to eat in that restaurant. Now, think of Beijing today. Uh, think of Wang Fujing. Think of the neon lights. Think about the tens of thousands of fantastic restaurants with food from all over the world. Uh, not just for foodies like myself, but in general, it is a remarkable transformation of, of the country. Now, one of the questions that comes out of this transformation that I have been part of myself is, of course, the question about essence. I mean, what is this China that we are trying to deal with in terms of understanding its domestic policy or, in the case of this book, its, its international affairs? Now, for most countries, this kind of definition is really given. It's not very difficult to explain in the case of most European countries, or even I would argue in the case of the United States of America, what the country is. With regard to China, it's much more difficult, much more contentious. And central to this book is that China is an empire. It covers more people than those who can, in an historical context, meaningfully be called Chinese. Some people would say today, that China is an empire that tries to behave as if it were a nation state. And there is much to that. The borderlines of China today are remarkably similar to those the Chinese Republic inherited from the Qing Empire, from the last great empire in Chinese history. Of course, these boundaries, these concepts of what China and Chineseness is, is something that has changed for a very, very long time in Chinese history, not just for the last 250 years. Uh, it goes back at least 2,500 years in Chinese history, probably even, even longer than that. So it's a contentious uh, concept uh, in terms of its essential definition. Now, when you write a book like this, you still have, if it's going to be meaningful both to yourself and to the reader, to have some kind of concept put into it in terms of definitions. 
what is China. So here is my definition for what it's worth. China is a culture and a state and a geographical core around which identities and boundaries and definitions of purpose have shifted and adjusted for a very, very long time. There are probably at least a hundred possible definitions, at least over the time period that I'm covering here, of what China is, and what the essence of China would be. But that changeability, that proclivity towards transformation, is essential to how I see China in this book. And this is where the title of the book, Restless Empire, uh, actually comes from. Now, it wasn't my title. It was actually my son who suggested it. Uh, I never seem to be able to come up with a good title for any of my own books. But I think this one works because it goes to the essence of how I see China. Now, within the core of what it means to be Chinese in terms of looking outwards, looking towards the rest of the world. There are, within all this transformation, all this change, certain concepts and perceptions that come out of China's deeper past. I wouldn't be an historian if I didn't claim that. I think you have to be careful with how you employ them. You have to be capable of discussing them um, and you have to know that they are always contentious. But there are some that come out of China's deeper parts that to me are important. These two, two and a half thousand, three thousand uh, year history of China. And with regard to foreign affairs, these preoccupations carried over from the past mainly fall into three categories, as I see it. The first one is a certain concept of justice the Chinese concept Li. Now, this is not distributive justice, as we often think about justice in the West. It's rather about order, and it is about place in the world. Sometimes it can be hierarchical. I mean, it can have to do with a hierarchy that puts people and states in a certain framework with regard to each other. Mostly, it is about a set of concepts that are connected to law, to ideas of behavior. The reason, as I explained in the book, why China embraced Western-style international law as much as the country did in the late 19th and early 20th century is intimately connected to this concept of justice. There had with this new world that China was suddenly thrown into to be something that went beyond the chaos of the international Western-led state system. There had to be some kind of general approach that ought to be there, that should be there. And the international law many Chinese believed in the 1890s, 1900s was that. Of course, they ended up terribly disappointed uh, in understanding that the Western world didn't in many cases, take the international law that they themselves had created terribly seriously. Which then made the concept of justice play back to what many people in China today see as the terrible injustices that China has been subject to at the hands of outside powers over the past 
150 years or, or more. This is part of the reason why Chinese foreign policy today is so preoccupied, for instance, with a concept such as sovereignty. I often try to explain to my friends in Beijing that sovereignty, in a broad sense, as the many students of international history and international affairs who are here today will know, may be a laudable principle, but it's not a policy. Now, what I would say to that is that that doesn't really matter, because it's sovereignty that really is the most significant concept in Chinese foreign policy that comes out of China's past. I wouldn't necessarily agree with that, but that is a point of view very strongly held in Beijing and among Chinese uh, uh, intellectuals who work on foreign affairs. Then, secondly, in terms of concepts and perceptions coming out of the past, there is a preoccupation with rules and with rituals. Now, you have to be very careful with this. And some people then think about the Qing Empire and the kowtowing, you know, that Western diplomats and others who came calling were subject to in, in front of the emperor. What we know today, of course, is that the emperor, particularly those emperors who knew the outside world well, such as the great Qianlong emperor in the 18th century, uh, variegated these rules and rituals according to what served their political purposes the best. So one has to be careful with being too um, direct about all of this. What I see as the center of this preoccupation with rules and rituals is the emphasis on what many Chinese see as a correct form of behavior in the relationship between individuals as well as the relationship between states and between parts of the world. There's also an emphasis in some quarters in China today on a correct way of understanding the world, which is part of the reason why there is so much debate and so much dissension among people who try to draw up strategies for how China should engage with the outside world today. And then thirdly, one can't get away from that. There is a sense of centrality. Now, many Chinese here, many people who speak Chinese will know the Chinese name for China, Zhongguo the central kingdom, or the central kingdoms. Now, I'm not among those who believe that that is a programmatic declaration of centrality. But it certainly does remind every Chinese who's alive today about a certain assumption about China's place within its own region, where indeed it has had, over the past at least 2,000 years, that centrality. Now, this centrality, to me, has been particularly meaningful in cultural terms. It's much less meaningful in military or strategic terms or diplomatic terms. But in cultural terms, uh, because of uh, Chinese culture being at the root of much of what has gone on for a long time in the rest of the region, this is an integral part of how many Chinese see the relationship to the, to the outside world. Let me talk a little bit about how this book is put together. I mean, I was very preoccupied with writing a history that is not just about wars or diplomatic affairs or conflicts at the state level. Uh, I wanted to write a book that's not just about foreign relations in a narrow sense. I wanted to write about emigrants and immigrants, about businessmen, about missionaries, about others who have engaged China and become part of international China in a broad, in a broad sense. 
And many of those are the chief protagonists in this book, Chinese and foreign. People like a man called Rong Hong, uh, known in the United States as Yung Wing, who was the first Chinese who graduate from, uh, graduated from a Western college when he graduated from Yale in 1854. Or the Yorkshireman, John Fryer, uh, who came to China as a missionary in the mid-19th century, but who became the foremost science publisher in Chinese. It was Fryer who ended his life as professor of Chinese at the University of uh, California, Berkeley, um, who translated many of the key Western texts on, on science into Chinese for the very first time. Truly a seminal figure in China's international history. I deal with Wang Tao, a Confucian scholar from Suzhou in, in central eastern China, who ended up spending much time in the little town of Dolla, Clark Manisha in Scotland in the 1860s, where he sat translating the Confucian classics and observed Scottish industrialization. He liked the Confucian classics. He didn't like industrialization one little bit. He reported back on how terrible this overall destruction of the landscape and of nature was and the would be a price to pay, he said, at the, end, at the end of all of this. Or someone like a guy called uh, Hie, Hie Ichu, uh, from Guangdong province in the south of China, who ended up as the richest man in Thailand in the beginning of the 20th century, and whose company is now the largest foreign direct investor in China. I mean, these are the kind of people that I try to deal with in the book in order to understand how China's international affairs have developed. And there is in this, I mean, there's sort of built into this, a significant position. Now, my students here often ask me, so, Professor Westard, what, what is your overall interpretation in this book? Because this is what I push them to do, of course, in their essays, or you to do in your essays, or, or in your dissertations. And I have to disappoint them and you. There is no single big interpretation in this book. But there is a significant position, I think, <clears throat> and that's this. The making of modern China was a metamorphosis, a hybrid created both from domestic and foreign influences. Modern China is by its very nature international. It's much more directed, has been much more directed through the whole period that I cover in this book towards the outside world than almost any other society that I know of. Part of the reason why this is not generally understood, I think, or I discovered as I was writing my way through this book, is an understanding of the Qing Empire and what the Qing Empire, the last great empire that collapsed in, belatedly in 1911, was all about. I mean, some people like to project the Qing Empire as inward-looking. A worse misunderstanding, particularly if you happen to live in Eastern Asia in the 18th century, is hard to imagine. I think anyone who regarded the Qing, for instance, under the Qianlong Emperor, after they'd conquered most of Central Asia, after they had beaten off the Russians in the north, after they had set up a tribute relationship with most of Southeast Asia to be inward-looking, probably would be sent off to have his head examined. This was an aggressive, expansionist empire, which was 
right up to the end of its days, very successful in terms of most things that it did uh, that was expansion-related. Um, it was an empire, in my view, that at least from the early um, 18th century is much more akin, much more similar to, say, the Austro-Hungarian Empire or the Ottoman Empire than anything that had gone on in China before it. Uh, in many ways, it makes sense, I think, in terms of its orientation with regard to the rest of the world, to talk about the Qing Empire as being modern. Now, a special kind of modernity, different kind of modernity, but a very consistent and clear break with what had gone before, with the traditional, uh, the, the, the classic, the modern aspects baked into it. Emphasis on technology, emphasis on organization and leadership, emphasis on one's place within a wider system. In that sense, the Qing was truly modern. And it's only, I think, to recognizing that that one can get an understanding of many of the issues that I talk about for the 19th and 20th century in the book. I'm also preoccupied with the economic and social transition that China went through uh, towards the end of the Qing era and in the early part of the 20th century. And one of the central points I make there, which is also very important for China's international affairs, is the degree to which many of these modern transformations took place in China roughly at the same time as they happened elsewhere in the world. In terms of many of these developments, China is not a latecomer. In terms of taking on science, in terms of taking over technology and developing technology. In terms of the whole transition over to urbanization and industrialization, this starts in China in the late 19th century. Of course, with relatively small numbers of people in a country of an immense size, but it does start. And the first Chinese generation that becomes urbanized, that becomes drawn in to the modern economy, it's about the same time as it would happen, for instance, in the country where I grew up, in, in Norway, and in, my, in my grandparents' generation, for instance. The same transition from magic to science, for instance, in terms of how you see the world. Uh, there's a story that I tell in the book, one of my favorite stories in it. The great Chinese writer, uh, Guo Morua, um, who in his memoirs talks about his science teacher. This must have been around 1895 or thereabouts. Um, who has access to contemporary textbooks, Western-style textbooks, about science. So he does this lecture on, on astronomy. It's only that he misreads the second character of the expression Tianran Yingxiang, natural conditions, as Tianlong Yingxiang, uh, the appearance of heavenly dragons. And so he intersperses his science lecture with the manifestations of these celestial creatures cruising the skies. Before he jumps back, uh, to Western-style astronomy again. Um, these forms of transformations we need to take very seriously and look very closely at in terms not just of their content, but when they happen. Not to make China more special than what it actually is on these kinds of matters. I talk in the book about the history of Chinese modernity as the history of China's involvement with the outside world. I mean, to me, this is very, very important, not just from the 70s on, but all through the period I deal with. 
I picked up a lot from others who worked in the field, um, not uh, only, uh, of course, Western writers, but also Chinese historians who worked on these different phases of China's modern development. Basically, what you could call, uh, following the great Hong Kong University historian Frank D. Kutter, an age of openness, I mean, the period in which China was probably at its most open with regard to the outside world, going from the 1880s and up to the 1930s, thereabouts, a Soviet era in Chinese history, socialist, moving towards communist, but still, with exception of the Cultural Revolution era, international, though international through the Soviet mirror and, and, and the Soviet image. The Soviet Union, of course, was very much a Western country, as seen from a, a Chinese perspective. And then what you could call the American era in China, and I use that term deliberately, from the 1880s and up to today. Uh, it is remarkable, and hopefully we can talk more about that in the discussion later, the influence that the United States has had in China. And a lot of Chinese would say, a lot of foreigners as well, say this is Western influence, foreign influence. And it is to some extent. But it is very striking for a rather old-fashioned European like myself when you go to China today and see this wholesale embrace of change uh, not to connect that to a specific and distinct American experience is very hard. There is much more of America in today's China than most Chinese, and certainly most Americans, uh, recognize. I also talk, of course, about another key encounter, another key moment, as it were, in, in Chinese history. Problematic, but also excep exceptionally important, the relationship with Japan. Um, which has been very divided in terms of the Chinese experience. Japan has both been a great inspirer for those who wanted to change China, all the way from Sun Yat-sen, who proclaimed in the early 19th century that if there was one thing that Chinese needed to do in order to be able to transform China, it was to learn Japanese. Um, and all the way up to the Japanese influence on China in, in more recent years. The Japanese occupation of China and the terrible crimes that were committed against Chinese on their own territory by, by Japanese during the war colors the relationship between the two countries, including today. But it would be entirely wrong to think that that is the full history of the Sino-Japanese relationship. <coughs> it's much more complex than that. It goes much further back in time, and there are many more positive aspects in this that most people pick up if they only concentrate uh, in terms of their studies on war, destruction, and despair. And then finally, um, there is a lot in the book, uh, and I've come to emphasize this increasingly, of the role of the Chinese diaspora and the role that Chinese who have spent most or all of their lives outside China, sometimes in several generations, have had on China itself. This is striking going back to the 19th century. And the number of people who've grown up abroad, who return, quotation marks, to China and have a tremendous impact in terms of Chinese politics and international affairs. Uh, one of my favorite, uh, favorites is a guy called Eugene Chun, um, born in Trinidad, uh, of a Chinese father and a Creole mother who served three times as Chinese foreign minister in the 1920s and 1930s. Never learned to speak Chinese, 
but he still was a key figure in terms of the development of Chinese international relations during that era. Now, that particular kind of hybridity is something that brings me to China's main issues in terms of its international affairs today. And I will run through a few of these before I round up. What are China's main challenges in terms of today's international affairs? Well, one is very clearly the question of China's borders and its neighbors. China wants to project itself, I believe, over the next generation, first and foremost as a regional power. There is very little ambition within the Chinese leadership to see China as a global power. And even if that ambition had existed, it would be very, very difficult to do. China simply does not have the background, doesn't have the means, doesn't have the ability in terms of, at the same time, dealing with a global rise and dealing with a very large part of the population that lives in poverty um, to go for these kinds of ambitions, at least not any time soon. But it does have very clear ambitions in regional terms. And this can be problematic enough because there is no one who's looked at East Asia in terms of what it is like today who believed that it would be easy for any Chinese leadership to return the region to what it looked like in the mid-18th century, around the time when my story in this book starts. There are no very strong nationalisms, very strong states that have come out of the post-colonial era in the rest of the region who are perfectly willing to try to oppose the kind of um, Chinese efforts to dominate uh, within its larger region. China has one ally, as I often remind my Chinese friends of, not just in its region, but in the whole world, one formal ally, and that is North Korea. Mm. Now, if you're allied to North Korea, you don't have an ally, <coughs> you have a problem. <laughs> and a very, very significant one. And of course, smarter people who deal with international affairs in Beijing have realized this a long time ago, but have so far been unable to find a strategy for dealing with it efficiently. And the more China is seen as linked uh, to a disastrous uh, dictatorship right on its own border, very often in ways that make, quite literally in this, in this case, uh, the smaller power overwhelm the purposes of the larger power, the more difficult it will be, I believe, for China to get much acceptance for some of the things it wants to do elsewhere within the region that it wants to see itself as the center of. So there are many challenges here uh, for China to deal with. Uh, there are some very good diplomats, very good foreign policy thinkers who try to deal with this effectively and rationally. Um, but it is a hard task and it's difficult to do. Secondly, it's clear to me that <coughs> for the next generation with the new leadership that's taking over in China this month, the emphasis on technology and on trade will continue. There will be more of a development, for reasons that I think are quite clear to everyone here, of uh, a domestic market and emphasis on domestic consumption. But not least for demographic reasons. The fact that the demographic rate in China has been declining very, very sharply over the past generation. The emphasis on engagement with the outside world in terms of technology and trade will be essential. And on this, there are a few things that I discuss in the book that I think are very important. I mean, are not generally noticed 
uh, among many who work on China's foreign relations. And this goes to the heart of what Mick and I often discuss in ideas, uh, and others at LSE discuss. Power shifts. Is the United States the declining power and China the rising power? Now, I see the United States as a declining power, relatively speaking, but I'm not so sure if China, at least China alone, is the rising power. Um, I do think, though, that even if we think about China as a rising power, it will be a different rising power from much that we have seen before, but from slightly different reasons that most people emphasize. The emphasis is very often on cultural differences. I mean, China is, in modern times, the first non-European country that is rising to international prominence, if you sort of bracket Japan, which you, of course, shouldn't. But that's how it's often seen. The main point to me is not that. The main point to me is that China today, as it rises, is much more integrated into the world economy than any previous rising power has ever been. Certainly much more than the United States of America was when it rose to international prominence. Very different from the kind of development experience that you've seen in the rest of East Asia. The key fact on that, to me, is that in the most productive, most outward uh, directed part of the Chinese economy, the one that deals with technology, both for domestic consumption and export, the level of foreign direct investments is about 60% of the overall capital that goes into it today. That is unique. And it's very, very different from, say, South Korea, when it was at the same level of development that China is now, which had, I think, the, the corresponding figure was around 4%. Or in Taiwan, where it may be a little bit higher, but still not more than 5 or 6%. China is more integrated into the international economy and into international affairs in many ways, than any other country has been. Now, this is not the same thing as saying that these kinds of involvements and interactions would necessarily prevent conflict. I mean, anyone who studied the period in European history prior to the First World War will know that this is a, a very unlikely guarantee. But it does tell you something about China as an international power, and it tells you something about why it is so difficult for China uh, to focus in on a different strategy in terms of what international affairs should look like from what the predominant power of today, the United States, has set. And then finally, what perhaps is the biggest problem to me in terms of China's international affairs, that's how the country is governed. China is a country that has been tremendously successful uh, in many ways. It has taken, over the last generation, uh, an astounding number, probably about 350 million people, out of poverty. But it has done so where, during a period when, for most part, it has been very, very badly governed. In terms of corruption, in terms of the difficulties that are created by over-centralization, lack of power and initiative coming out of the provinces, um, with an inability to embrace the kind of pluralism that I often see in Chinese history. Uh, not just because I regard pluralism as being uh, a good in sort of general terms, though I do, but also because the ideas, the, the, the conflicts, concepts, debates that are there within a more pluralist China would have been a necessary benefit that could come out of the kind of situation 
that has been developing since the late 1970s. And in China, that hasn't really happened. So taking the leap from where China is now in terms of governance over on to the next level, which is a level which I think it's very unlikely we'll see any kind of democracy of the style that we are known to have in, in Western Europe at the best of times, or in North America. And that's unlikely. But I think we will get, by necessity, a more pluralist China. Uh, because if China is not capable of carrying out these kinds of political reforms and do so relatively quickly, it will be unable to set up <coughs> the kind of international strategy that the country really needs, and particularly for its own region. So in that sense, there is a link, a very strong link, that all of us should watch between what happens domestically in China, what direction the new political leadership in China wants to go in, in terms of political reform, and the kind of China that we will see outside its own borders. And I think it's only to trying to understand some of the central concepts that come out of China's history in terms of its engagement with the outside world, that it would be possible for us even to have an informed view of what the options are in terms of these debates and how they may end up. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Johnny. Great. Great lecture, lots of things to talk about, and I'm going to abuse my position as chair, as I always do, and ask the first question. Um, Arnie, I loved that periodization, and you came to the 1980s as the American era, um, and some of the obvious similarities between China and the United States, which sounds like a mad argument at one level, doesn't it? Because everybody in the United States doesn't think that, and most people in China probably don't think that. But the symbiosis between the two, it seems to me, in some of the visits I've made to China, uh, under your uh, leadership, as they would say, in China, um, has led me to that conclusion. But the question I want to ask is a more general one about why the fascination with the United States? Why the deep ambiguity towards the United States? It's both rival and partner. You hear Chinese foreign policy students saying, America's trying to prevent China's rise when this is palpably untrue because without America it would have been very difficult for China to rise. You hear great emphasis on China's cultural distinctiveness, but much of what distinguishes China looks to me very much like a country with American characteristics. I'd just sure. like you to kind of reflect on that a bit more and tease that one out before we go over to sure. talk about the rest, yeah? Well, this is a, I, it can be seen at one level as you know, a bit more than an irony. I mean, you know, <laughs> a, a kind of comparison that can't or shouldn't really be made. And the reason why I push it so much mm -hmm. in this book has to do with two main issues. I mean, one is when modernization in China of the more recent kind actually started, China's reform and opening period in the 1970s. I think it is essential that that happened at a point when the world was moving towards the end of the Cold War, where the United States in the 1980s, the decade that probably means more than any other decade for the direction that contemporary China has done, the world seemed to be unipolar. You know, the world seemed to move in a direction that was dominated by the United States. This is what made Deng Xiaoping say famously that the real issue to consider, comrades, in terms of international affairs 
is that everyone who's tried to oppose American power have collapsed. Only those who've been able to work with American power have been able to succeed. Now, that part of it, I think, is essential. But then there is a deeper level, which is a cultural level. Mm. And this is what I argue probably more than anything in this book. There are, in funny ways, many similarities between contemporary Chinese society and American society. The restlessness, the willingness to transform, to embrace new values, to move on to things that may look very different from what you had in the past. Mm. A lot of nonsense is written about Chinese respect for tradition and going back to the classics and reading what has been said earlier on. What I find is a China that is very different from that. It may respect the classics, but it has very little chance, so it's young people today, very little chance of understanding them, not least because most of them can't read classical Chinese, so they won't be able to, to read these, even if they wanted to, those that haven't been translated into, into modern characters. Um, there is this embrace of change on everything from the way you live your lives, the kind of products that you use, uh, the kind of ways you organize your companies, you organize your, um, your, your apartments or your mortgages, um, over onto uh, what has to do with, with, with currencies and currency status and all of this. That is very similar in China to what you've found over a much longer historical period, obviously, in the United States, and very different from what I see in contemporary Europe. Mm. Uh, it is Europe that is surprisingly different in this context. Not China, and not China's relationship in this particular sense to the United States. Uh, I get this very often from Chinese students we have here at LSE, mm. who have been to the United States, which they find a country that is much easier to understand for them as Chinese, having grown up you know, over the, the, the past generation than most of the European countries that they visit. Mm. I suppose you could say the highest form of flattery is where do you want, where do you want to send your children to university? True. And it looks like very large numbers of the Chinese Central Committee seem to want to send their children to Cornell, Harvard, and Princeton. Well, that seems to be some, a pretty some, good indication of something. Some send them to LSE as well. And some send LSE them to LSE as well, no. Yeah, the, the very wise ones send them to the LSE. You know, we, know, we know that, aren't we? You know. Okay, let's just open it up. Let's get some hands moving here. Gentleman in the middle here, and uh, a lady over here. So, yeah, gentleman. Now. I got a gentleman here. No, no, that's 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 a lady you're looking at. There. This is a gentleman. Oh, no, it's a lady. Okay. 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 Uh, please. Okay. Thank you, Professor. Uh, I'm a student from sociology department, and I have a question about the lecture. In terms of rising power, you just mentioned. Uh, what do you think about the, uh, like the cultural impact? compare with like the United States when it arrived in the past century, the cultural impact towards the world. Thank you. Soft power, in other yeah. words. Soft yes. power, yeah. exactly. It, do you want to take that one or take the other one too? Yeah, take that one too, please. Yeah. Take two together. So soft power, yeah, please. Hi, Professor. I was wondering if you could clarify how far do China's regional ambitions extend to? Because most literature talks about re the region as being East Asia and Southeast Asia. Hmm. But what about China's relationship with Pakistan and the string of pearls that it has in the Indian Ocean? Hmm. Okay, let's start with those two. Honey. Thanks, Judith. Two, two great questions. Um, soft power. Uh, one of my favorite stories from a program that LSE runs with the Waijiao Bu, the Chinese Foreign Ministry, where we do sort of a bespoke training program for mid-level Chinese diplomats. We are, by the way, the only institution in the world that does anything like this, which may be reflective of the current Chinese foreign minister being an LSE graduate. 
Um, one of them, you remember me, one of the first ones who came in mm. wanted to do his dissertation on Chinese soft power. And he was very bullish on Chinese soft power when he came in, and he ended up concluding in, a, in an excellent dissertation mm. that China had no soft power no whatsoever. Now um, we probably argued that they ought to, they ought to get more of it. Yeah. Look, I mean, the problem is China doesn't at the moment have, or haven't for a long time had, the kind of attractiveness that makes other people within the region, particularly younger people, uh, look up to China as a model they want to emulate. There are, if you look at uh, all of Asia, Africa, parts of Latin America today, it's an enormous respect and admiration for the Chinese economic success. But most people also realize that there's very little of the model for that economic success that can be uh, uh, translated, uh, transferred elsewhere. But on everything else that matters, you know, from, from pop music to television series to computer games, whatever you have, very little of this is actually produced in the PRC. It's rather the PRC that takes this from the Chinese diaspora mm. or from other countries within the region, particularly now the, uh, uh, what do you say in English, the South Korean ruh, the wave, the, the yeah, Gangnam style. That's exactly right. <laughs> very good. Very good. Um, you know, so I, if you want to project yourself as the regional center, as China could in the mid-18th century, because Chinese culture was widely admired. I mean, look at Korea, my favorite example in the book. Uh, Korean intellectuals, up to the very late 19th century, were more oriented towards Chinese Confucianism, or Neo-Confucianism, as we call it, than most people in China itself were. Uh, and had much harder in giving it up. Now, that is very different from the situation today. Then secondly, Judith's question on India and Pakistan. I emphasize North Korea uh, in the lecture. Now, if you look at this from an Indian perspective, of course, you could say that China has not just one, but two disastrous allies, the other one being Pakistan. Um, it looks like they've gone out sort of collecting, scraping the barrel. Here. Sorry, I, I, didn't want to, I didn't want to insult any Pakistanis. Who are here. But I mean, I think it is very clear that being allied to Pakistan at this particular point is a huge problem. And the main problem in it is not the instability within Pakistan itself and the uncertainty about Pakistan's future direction. It is Pakistan's inimical relationship to India, which is the other rising power within the larger region. And as I explained earlier on today to some Indian journalists, this is, a, this is a relationship that is not going too well at the moment. Um, now, it, one should, has to be careful with blaming the Chinese for all that is wrong in the Sino-Indian relationship. Uh, much of what India has done, particularly over the last decade, from its forward patrolling into disputed areas in the Himalayas, to the extraordinary fear that seems to have gripped many in the, in the political leadership in India, of whatever party they, they represent, of China's rise being a threat to India. I mean, you know, some of this comes from the Indian side as well. But it is a very problematic relationship, and it will remain exceedingly problematic as long as China is seen as being the ultimate guarantor of Pakistan's security and Pakistan's role, also with regard to India or, or, or Afghanistan, uh, within the wider region. Okay, I've got a couple of hand over here. Hi. 
um, a lady right there, yeah. Okay, and the gentleman up there. So, lady here from ideas. Oh. Gentleman up here, please. Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, first of all, I would like to say, uh, this book, Restless of Chi uh, Restless Empire, just to give the perfect term to describe Chinese history. Hmm. You know, Chinese history from Qing Empire, uh, Han Empire, until Ming Empire and Qing Empire. You know, just uh, full of circles. And empire to empire to empire, China struck for empire once, once and again, once and again. And now it's another time, just a rising empire. Uh, but uh, where the outer, you know, foreign un, uh, countries look at China as empire is rising, but Chinese people look at China from inside. We have different opinion. Uh, we just worry about, you know, China has risen and fall, risen and fall many times. So this time. We worry about the Communist Party, whether you know, it can rule China for a long time, mm. or China you know, collapsed in a, just in one night, etc. Mm. So, and recently, a lot of uh, uh, just like domestic uh, problems in China happened. So, what's your opinion mm. towards this kind of sure. phenomenon? Okay, great. Uh, gentleman up there, yeah, please. Good evening, Professor. You, uh, you mentioned that um, China's uh, ambitions are very shy. They, they, they only want to, the, the leadership has ambitions in terms of regional power. On the <coughs> other hand, when the West tends to relate to the Chinese, they tend to speak about China needing to embrace the responsibilities that come with being a global power. Now, to, you know, one way to read that is just that it's a polite way for the, for the US to tell China to devalue its currency and do a, a bunch of other things it doesn't want to do. But how can we... Um, how can Chinese leaders, how do you think they read this encouragement for them to embrace the responsibility of, of their status as a global power mm. when they so. don't have such I ambitions? Mean, an outside mm. question there, aren't you? Yeah, nice both, both good questions. Yeah. Um, on the first question, China's difficulties. I mean, if you, if you travel a, deal, uh, a great deal in China, as, as, as I do, you do get that very distinct impression um, that people tend to concentrate on the difficulties and the challenges, have a very cautious, somewhat fearful outlook uh, towards China's own future and to China's interaction with the rest of the world. Most of this, most of the fuel, as I see it, for the rise of Chinese nationalism comes out of those insecurities, comes out of that fear uh, of what uh, China's position with regard to the outside world really is. Um, the suspicion uh, that goes with it, uh, that in part because of its own deficiencies, in part because of history, the outside world doesn't really respect China, doesn't really take Chinese seriously, look down on Chinese because they are Chinese. Um, now, when this comes up, I, I teach a class in, in Beijing, WITMIC, every August, and when this comes up from the uh, perspective of Chinese students, I mean, my response is usually um, relatively hard-nosed. I mean, there are many problems. And it's only the Chinese who can set these problems right. And you don't do that by going onto the streets saying that these are our islands, or this is our South China Sea, and you call your fingers off. Uh, that might be a reasonable position to take. I mean, some people would argue that. I, I, I don't believe that. Um, but it's not China's central problem. I mean, the central problems in China are dealing with its demographic decline, are dealing with the poverty issues that are there are dealing with the skewed relationship between the center of the provinces, are dealing with uh, uh, the getting a balanced 
an integrated relationship to ethnic minorities within China. Those are China's key problems. And of course, it's long-term economic outlook as well, avoiding a hard landing for the, for the Chinese economy. An issue, by the way, which I think is intimately connected to the way in which China makes a transition over to a more pluralistic society uh, and a more pluralistic polity than what, than what we are seeing today. But it is very important to note that, that this is not, when you, when you travel in China, this is not a jubilant people who sit around saying, we're rising, we're rising. Um, it's not like that. Uh, there is a lot of fear, there is a lot of concern, there is a lot of uncertainty. And, and particularly now before the Party Congress, you, you see a lot of this in, in various parts uh, of the country. Res you know, the stakeholder question, as I should call it, are in China's responsibilities in a broader sense. I don't think we have any historical examples of countries that have taken up uh, international responsibility by being encouraged by other people to do so. Um, Rudyard Kipling's uh, White Man's Burden, which of course was written in order to get the United States to take up its role in international affairs, I don't think had really much of an effect uh, in, in, in the United States, or at least its, its effects were very, very divided, coming from a very English Englishman. Um, so I think, the, I mean, the thing is difficult to do. I think, I mean, it, it connects in a way to the first the answer I gave to, to, to the first question. There is a lot of uncertainty uh, about how to proceed, at least in questions that are not related to the larger region that, that China is a part of. I mean, look at Chinese diplomacy with regard to the Middle East after the Arab Spring, for, for instance. Um, very regressive, uh, very uncertain, um, uh, mainly being connected to not being willing to take a full position. Um, uh, now, I've been very critical uh, in Beijing and elsewhere to my Chinese friends in terms of China's views of many of these conflicts. But I do understand where they're coming from. I mean, they come from a China that simply is, or a Chinese leadership, I should say, that simply isn't ready to engage on a broad scale with global problems. The knowledge is not there, in spite of our best attempts at LSE to try to train the next generation of Chinese diplomats and Chinese officials. Uh, the um, understanding in a broader sense of what China's role might be mm. in these kinds of cases, how China could use its power, very little of an understanding of that. And I think even if there were more of an understanding, uh, there would be great reluctance towards using this Chinese power for any other purpose than getting Chinese people out of conflict zones, out of harm's way when it actually hits. I mean, look at, look at Libya. Uh, in, that, in that context. Uh, I think you will see more of that in China over the, over the next few years. But it doesn't seem to me that Chinese diplomacy on these kinds of issues is you know, going much further than a kind of instinctive anti-hegemonism, as they would call it, or anti-Americanism, as you could call it in a broad sense, in, dip in diplomatic terms, saying no to whatever the Americans say yes to. Mm. But I mean, as, again, as I say in Beijing, that may be a laudable aim, but it sure as hell is not a strategy. Okay, we got, I've got three. There's a young lady up there in the balcony. Somebody over here with the white sweater and a chap over there. Yeah, please, I'll take three. Please. Yeah. Um, thank you, Professor. Um, you alluded to the prospect that uh, China will become more pluralist, uh, pluralist here, upstairs. Mm -hmm. Sorry, here. 
that. <laughs> Sorry, wait. it's sometimes a bit difficult to hear. Um, and then we are going to see in the next few weeks the, the transition of the new leadership. And we are going to see the number of the members in the standing committee of the Politburo will be reduced from nine to seven. Mm. So do you see that's a good sign in that respect? I think uh, many has, have uh, uh, pre pre uh, predicted that China will become more open, but uh, the question here really is, mm. how does that happen? Does it happen yeah. from, uh, uh, is it a top-down process that's happened from leadership, or mm. is it going to be pushed from the society? And is it going to be a very violent process? Yep. Right, okay. Kremlinology coming in here. Yeah. Um, good evening, Professor. Um, you emphasized a lot about the relationship, the reciprocal relationship between China and America. Mm. And um, we have two great power, power transitions going uh, to happen very, very shortly. Um, the U.S. elections and also the one in China that was also mentioned. Uh, what do you think these transitions will... Um, what consequences will they have on the relationship between the U.S. and China and more mm. broadly um, on the world? Okay, so U.S.-China relationships after the next Obama victory, is that the question? <laughs> it was said here the other night. Yeah. Gives away uh, his preferences. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> and a gentleman there, please. I'm studying international relations department. Mm. I have a question about the issue of sovereignty. Um, so far as I read about the literature, uh, Chinese politicians, especially pragmatic Chinese leaders, are so capable of making concession over sovereignty. The most notorious one, as we know, is the 19, late 1940s or early 1950s. China made concession over the independence of Outer Mongolia. Mm. And the recent one, um, Chinese made concession with Russia over its eastern borders, also draw a lot of international attention. Mm. So if the sovereignty issue is so closely associated yeah. with the notion of justice, with the domestic legitimacy, why the Chinese leaders could, de could do that? Good question. Okay. Could, could I deal with those in, in reverse order? Yeah. Uh, that's a very interesting question that you just asked. Of course, all of this, this is why I love being an historian, depends on the circumstances. I mean, China accepted the independence of Outer Mongolia, the Mongolian Republic as it is now, uh, because it was allied to the sponsor uh, of that republic, the Soviet Union, which was the ultimate guarantor in the 1950s for, for China's security and China's economic development through the largest assistance program that the world has ever seen uh, from the Soviet Union to China uh, during the period of cooperation in, in the 1950s. Um, uh, I was not arguing in any way that Chinese concepts of sovereignty are absolute. Uh, they do change. Uh, and they are situational, as it were. But it's the emphasis on the sovereignty issue itself that, that I think is, is, is particularly important with regard to it. And that plays over now on the real difficulties that China is facing. For instance, over the past two year, years, in my view, and I've argued this in Beijing as well as in Southeast Asia, uh, the Chinese leadership has managed to throw away Deng Xiaoping's policy, 20 years of creating goodwill to the Southeast Asian nations on a conflict with regard to access to resources in the South China Sea that China simply cannot win. Most Chinese diplomats, and I'm very sorry to say this, who I meet, and I meet a lot of them, do not even know what China's actual demands in the South China Sea are. Uh, what they've seen is a map with a nine-stipled line uh, that makes everything mm. that exists in the South China Sea Chinese territory from time immemorial uh, including a reef that is about five nautical miles outside of Manila Harbor. 
I mean, you know, if, if you want to create an adversarial relationship with a region that is going to be of great significance to China's future rise, that's how you do it. Uh, and I think, you know, there are signs now that the new leadership coming to that question is trying to roll back on that issue. But they better do it fast, because this is threatening to unravel a relationship that China has spent so much time, so much patience, so much effort on building over, over a long generation. Actually, China's biggest foreign policy success mm. of the past 50 years was to rebuild the relationship to Southeast Asia. And the current leadership seems hellbound in terms of uh, wrecking at least significant parts of that. Xi Jinping um, and political change. It's a very hard one. I mean, actually, I'll take those two questions together. I mean, I think, as most cases, we know very little about Xi. I actually knew his father. Um, and he's obviously a very different character from his father, who, a man who became famous, at least internally, within the party in China, for all he did for saving people who got into trouble after the 1989 events and was purged, as he himself said to me, for the fifth time um, <laughs> by the party leadership for doing so. Um, Old Xi was a very brave and very, very impressive man. Young Xi, Xi Jinping, it's, it's much more difficult to say. He seems to be a cautious policymaker. He seems to be more on the nationalist side than what Hu Jintao has been, at least with regard to the region and possibly also the relationship to the United States. He has been part of groups earlier on that have discussed political change in terms of reform, I mean, small internal groups within the party leadership who meet at places like Beidahe on the coast and elsewhere to discuss these, these matters. But he never seems to take a concrete position on this, which is probably the reason why he is now going to become China's next leader. <laughs> um, now, how this is linked up to the transition happening in the United States, I was trying to check on this last time I was in Beijing, and the general assumption is still, and I think it's broadly correct, that the CCP leadership is more comfortable with the Republican in the White House than they are with the Democrat in the White House. This has some historical reasons, most of them based on pure historical misunderstandings, that the only way that the uh, outreach to China from the US side could happen was during the Republican administration of Richard Nixon. Only Richard Nixon could out Nixon, as it were, his former self, uh, with regard to a hard line on China and then opening up to the country. Um, it, may, it also has something to do with how the Chinese economy works. I mean, China may be ruled by a communist party, but it's very, very dedicated to international market access and having the kind of relationship in economic terms that many Republicans in the United States seem to prefer. I think they are much more preoccupied with that than concern about the hardline view that Romney has taken in the election campaign with regard to China. The general sense is that candidate Romney is one thing, and President Romney would be something something very, very different. That's been the Chinese view, I think, throughout uh, the time when they are engaged with American political history, and mostly they have been right. Okay, I've got a hand at the back there. You had your hand up. Can you take the thing over there? Any, anybody from upstairs? And the gentleman up there, yeah. So we take a few more. Okay, we've got a bit more time. Yeah, and a chap next to you. Okay, uh, I'll start at the bottom and come back up to you, okay? Uh, sir, over here. Great, thanks. Um, Professor Westad, you touched uh, in your lecture a little bit on the uh, issue of economic interdependence, mm. um, and you mentioned uh, just now uh, natural resources as an issue as well. Um, 
in a lot of the popular discourse on China, rising China's role in the world, these kind of issues um, can almost take over everything else very quickly. You know, there is a kind of simplified chain of thought that says if China's leadership requires continued economic growth for political stability, then you know, uh, to support that economic growth, the access to markets, access to mm. investment, and mm. above all, access mm. to scarce natural resources uh, are essential, mm. and therefore China needs to uh, project power increasingly, not just within a East or Southeast Asian region, but also you know, as far as the Middle East, Africa, and beyond. Uh, now, does that strike you as perhaps a, a form of almost economic determinism um, or is there some logic there that you buy into to some extent that, that the Chinese leadership is inexorably going to be drawn into that broader global world because of those economic forces? Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll take that one. And the uh, gentleman up there, please. Yeah. Sure. Um, thank you. I wanted to follow up on something you'd said about all this Chinese politician students, you know, sons and daughters studying abroad mm -hmm. in the West, mostly the U.S. and also England, here at LSE included. The impact of cultural exchange. You know, some people have said that all these leaders, sons and daughters, Xi Jinping's daughters at Harvard, et cetera, et cetera, will reduce the likelihood of the U.S. and China going to war in the future. Um, do you think that's true? Do you think there's any worse to that? Do you think there's any comparison to all of the Chinese um, elites studying abroad in Japan in the early 1900s and yet still <laughs> going to war with the country eventually anyway? Absolutely. Okay. Well, good questions both. Uh, on, the, on the latter one, uh, I think you more or less drew the conclusion yourself there I mean, by looking at the relationship between China and Japan. Um, most of the Chinese uh, who led the country in, in the mid-20th century were Japanese-educated in one, one form or another, and that did not prevent war and conflict between the two. What it did do, though, after that disastrous war broke out, was to make a slow but rather sure reconciliation possible. I mean, even, even up to very, very recently. I mean, I was struck when I came to China in the late 1970s, um, speaking with a lot of people who had witnessed terrible atrocities by Japanese soldiers in China, how they were still able to think in different terms about the... Japanese state that had allowed these terrible atrocities to be carried out, and the Japanese people, especially individual Japanese people, with whom they wanted to have more contact. Uh, their view of Japan was much more positive than the poll that I take every year among my students at Beida, at Peking University, which shows that these people who've never experienced anything like this have a much more negative view of Japan than what their uh, parents and their grandparents' uh, generation had. Now, I hope it won't be necessary for the Sino-Western view to go through a similar trajectory, but I do think that in terms of understanding and in terms of empathy, uh, being trained abroad is of great significance. I mean, I think it is something that is carried over in many ways in terms of Chinese development. The problem today is that China's political system, even with the uh, the, the, the prince's party, uh, young princelings, um, even with them, they come up against a set of uh, formal restrictions in terms of how they can use their Western training. Um, one of the points that we've been going on about with regard to the Chinese foreign ministry is that 
There is a general rule in the Chinese foreign ministry saying that you cannot enter as a graduate into uh, the Chinese foreign ministry if you've been trained outside of China, if you've been educated outside of China. You know, if you wanted to create a silly rule holding Chinese diplomacy back, that must be about it. It's a very Soviet-style rule. I mean, coming, mm. out of the, coming out of the Chinese past, mm. people who spend time abroad cannot really be trusted, and uh, saboteurs and wreckers and all of this could be amongst them. Now, at the same time as the leadership itself sends its sons and daughters to be trained abroad. Now, of course, there may not be that much of contradiction on this because we know what the sons and daughters of the leaders do. They do not become Chinese diplomats. They probably don't even wish to become Chinese diplomats. They, uh, yeah, hi, they go into, the, uh, into, into <laughs> business, into business. Mm-hmm. and enjoy that, where a Western education certainly um, is a great advantage. Resources. Um, I don't really find, in terms of its attempt, or the attempts by Chinese companies, rather, of getting access to resources so that they can sell at a good price, to be all that different from the behavior of Western companies who are trying to, trying to do the same. Um, I mean, one difference, obviously, is that some of these Chinese companies are state-owned, uh, wholly or partially, but they still have to operate as, you know, in terms of the bottom line, very much as private companies. I mean, it's, this is one of the most misunderstood things about the Chinese economy at the moment that the government actually steers the Chinese economy in ways that would have been unthinkable in Western Europe or in North America. Um, there are, I mean, in some areas, it is possible to have an influence. For instance, through how the currency, um, choose my words carefully, is operated. Um, but in general, uh, I mean, this is a much more free market-oriented uh, kind of setup than what you find in, in most Western countries, where publicly-owned companies first and foremost have to look at the bottom line, or they will be ex-public companies, um, for those of you who follow Monty Python. Um, <laughs> you know, these companies will cease to exist if they do not bring in the Dow. Um, even more so, I think, now for state-owned companies than for, uh, for privately-owned companies. Um, and this is also true with regard to resources. I think it's highly unlikely that China will put its political, not to mention its, its military power, behind acquisitions and attempts by Chinese companies to operate in terms of getting access to resources abroad. There is a lot of thinking about this being in China's broad strategic interest, but they haven't quite figured out how to do that. I mean, I remember a planner I spoke to, a planner working for the small leading group on foreign affairs in the Central Committee, which is basically where Chinese foreign policies run from. And he, was, he had just had a meeting with some business people who he tried to get to make investments in a certain African country that has resources that China strategically would be interested in. And they said, yes, absolutely, dear comrade, we will, we will do that if you provide and guarantee the capital that we put into that country, uh, which, of course, is a non-starter in, mm. in China as well. So and this is a complicated relationship. Do not think necessarily that it's different for political reasons in China than, than what it is in other capitalist economies. Okay, I'm aware the time is pressing on. I'm going to take one more question from here, but be- the gentleman here in the middle, yeah? But, be- but before he asks his question, I'm going to ask him, I've got to connect Norway and China ah, somehow. I thought so. I was thinking awesome about that. Uh, the Nobel Prize for Peace has been awarded to a number of institutions, well, one institution, mm. the European Union, just mm. which I think is a good idea. They gave it to Obama uh, two weeks after he'd become president. But they also gave it to a 
well-known Chinese figure. Could you say what that tells us, not just about Norwegian-Chinese relationship? I'm now told there's a lot of salmon still left in Norwegian waters, which ain't going to be sold to China. Um, it's sold somewhere else. It's sold somewhere very else. Good price. I know, very good price. <laughs> Probably in Japan, I should imagine. But what does it tell us about the broader ways in which China deals with non-governmental organizations mm. and with the mm. West? Because it doesn't mm. seem to me... They kind of lost the plot on that one and kept going mm. on to Poirot Gill and Understat and others sure. at the Nobel. And we both yeah. have connections. So mm. pick that one up sure. first and take that okay. one first. Okay. Go, I'll, go I'll, for that I'll, I'll and then we'll come now, back to Mick knows that I have as a rule that I never comment on uh, <laughs> prize awards from the Nobel Prize Committee after I left the committee myself. <laughs> but I make one exception, this one. <laughs> and that's this one. <laughs> uh, uh, award, uh, which I thought was a very good idea, generally speaking. I'm not 100% certain whether he was the right recipient of it on the Chinese side, but he was as good as anyone. I mean, I think it is very important that a uh, committee who has the ability to do so and still is listened to, in spite of other recent awards, um, uh, internationally, to, to point out enormous deficiency that China has in terms of how it deals with freedom of speech. Um, and individual rights. Uh, that's important. I mean, it's something that's important, of course, first and foremost for the Chinese themselves, but it's also important for how the outside world sees China, and it's something that the current political leadership ought to do uh, much more about. Now, what's so interesting, of course, in the, in the Norwegian context here is that China's attempts then, um, rather heavy-handed attempts, <laughs> at, at punishing Norway for the decision taken by the Nobel Committee, I mean, if you want to pick one country in the whole world where that kind of attempts at isolation really doesn't work very well, I mean, I mean, no you, could, you could pick no, no. possibly Botswana. I mean, but I mean, you know, no, no. you don't pick a country that is so immensely wealthy. Yes. Uh, that has a, a, an export economy that is that functions so well. Because first, based on its enormous oil and gas resources, there are about four million people that all could be pensioned off. You know, and just what comes in through the Norwegian <laughs> government in, in, in fees for oil, for oil exploration. Uh, it doesn't work, it hasn't worked, and it's been terribly embarrassing for China. Um, and, you know, I mean, there are changes going on, I think, from what I hear in that relationship now where it's being adjusted back. Mm. A lot of people I speak to in Beijing, including official circles, say that this was a mistake. You know, I mean, China should have condemned it. I mean, they would regard that as very good, something that you do. But the follow-up was, was misplaced and heavy-handed and shouldn't have worked. Mm -hmm. Now, it's important to me to get this across to you. There is a lot of discussion about these kinds of issues in Beijing today. I mean, when Mick and I and others at LSE go to the Chinese Foreign Ministry, or where we teach at Peking University, there are no holds barred on this. I mean, I've sat in a room with Chinese diplomats who have dissected these Chinese foreign policy decisions, when they've been asked to do so by the superiors, and done so very critically, saying, for instance, you know, the, the uh, way that China deals in international affairs terms with unrest in Tibet is disastrous. Um, you know, so I mean, it, it's not this, this idea that everything is closed, everything is heavy-handed from the top down doesn't, doesn't work. But even so, in many cases, that doesn't you know, provide the kind of outcome that many of us would like to see. Okay, one last question in the middle here, and I'm going to make this the last one. Please, sir. Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm a master's student here mm. in IR, and 
I'm very interested in the question in the what you mentioned about Chinese diaspora, mm. and that was back in 1920s. You said, well, yeah. and uh, yeah, and I'm from Singapore, so mm. I'm sort of part of that group of Chinese diaspora, but it's modern times. So I'm just interested to know what do you think of the effect? What effects do modern Chinese diasporas have on, say, Chinese foreign policy or even domestic policy? Because we mm. know that uh, like. China and Singapore do share some kind of uh, special economic model, and mm. yeah. yeah. Certainly, both Chinese majority states. Um, yeah, I, I think the Chinese diaspora, however you define that group, is going to continue to be incredibly important for China's foreign policy and for its domestic restructuring. Uh, I think there's very little doubt about that. Singapore has played a vital role. Uh, for many Chinese that I know in terms of understanding a different model than what China came out of in terms of how society could be organized. And the starting point here with so many other things that happens in China during the period I'm most interested in uh, is with, with Deng Xiaoping. Uh, now I've been reading the conversations that Deng had with Li Kuan Yew when he first came, or when he came to uh, Singapore in 1978. Um, and they are truly fascinating. I mean, both of them are Hakka, Kerja, in terms of their background. Both of them share much of an ethnic identity with, within China. And immediately, on the start of these conversations, Deng sort of throws aside the official agenda, and he points to Li, and he says, you know, I've been here once before, Deng says. That was in 1920, on my, <laughs> on my way to France. Mm -hmm. Then you were a poor country. Now you're a rich country. Tell me how that happened. So they have a five-hour seminar on this. Mm -hmm which is utterly fascinating to follow. Now, I'm not saying this because I think Deng followed the Singaporean model, mm -hmm. but I do think he, like many other Chinese mm -hmm. in the era of opening and reform, have been incredibly inspired by what other Chinese have been able to do elsewhere in the world. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, this is what I hope for China's future as well, because the Chinese are a fantastically resourceful people, uh, in part because of the long history that they stand in in part because of the culture that they share in a, broad, in a broad sense, but also because there are so many different experiences that Chinese people have had over the 250 years that I cover uh, in this book. Mm. And there is no better guide for today's leadership in Beijing than looking at these experiences in various other places in the world, including Taiwan, <coughs> by the way, um, in order to understand how China can be made better for, for all of its people. Okay, I think on that optimistic note, Arnie, we shall come to a conclusion. I was going to tell you some stories of Arnie West out of Mick Cox in China. Most no, of, don't. Most of them are unprintable, but being China is bound to be around food, as I discovered. And on well, I thought it would be around my very, my very first visit to Beidou, which was a really wonderful and extraordinary experience, Arnie said to me, there's this fantastic Sichuan restaurant just around the corner. So we went round the corner, and the corner had disappeared. Yeah. And um, we finally found the Sichuan restaurant, which turned out to be an HSBC bank. Yes. Arnie then paid me back the following year. He said, I know this wonderful Hunan restaurant down in the Hutong. So we wandered through back street after back street, and we finally came across this wonderful little restaurant. We walked in, and there's a great picture of Chairman Mao looking at me and the food was excellent but I wasn't so sure about the photograph but the lady who ran the restaurant she really was a devoted old mouth follower wasn't she anyway I've had great times with Arnie both in China and of course in in running ideas the partnership as Arnie has said 
will continue. I'd like to thank all of you for your wonderful question. I'd like to thank Arnie for his great speech and look forward to a great Saturday match between Arsenal and Manchester United. Yeah, come on. Where the peaceful That's rise of Arsenal will continue. And, uh, and thank you very much, Arnie Westhouse.